the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. The number is 303-873-1935. Hey, if you'd like to join me on the program, would love to hear from you. 303-873-1935. Enjoyed, enjoyed, enjoyed my conversation with Travis Allen the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Greeley. And, of course, if you want to know more about him, you can go to at pillaroftruthradio.com. And in this hour, taking your calls, answering your questions, typically it is a Tough Question Tuesday. In the first hour, um, didn't take tough questions, but happy to take tough questions in the second hour, 303-873-1935. And, as always, giving a caveat, a disclaimer Uh, You're free to ask me whatever you want. Um, I know that a lot of people on podcasts are doing what's called AMA. AMA is not the American Medical Association. AMA is Ask Me Anything. Ask Me Anything. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. Wondering if you're going to watch the Super Bowl. Wondering who you're going to root for. Wondering if you're going to watch the ads. And it's come to my attention at ChristianHeadlines.com. Michael Faust has posted this headline at ChristianHeadlines.com. Jesus commercials return to the Super Bowl. He gets us and hollow to air ads. So uh, apparently commercials about Jesus are returning to the Super Bowl. And I'm wondering how effective they are. Now think about it. A 60-second commercial. Producer Jim, how much do you suppose the 60-second commercial costs? It's got to be a couple million. Yeah, it's a couple, it's between one and three million. So there's going to be a 60 second he gets us ad that will air during the first quarter and a 15 second one during the second half. So I'm wondering if the 15 second commercial is still close to a million dollars in the second half. I don't know exactly, exactly what all of that means. But and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. But so obviously the Super Bowl is between the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers. And um, the he gets us ads are going to be different from the ones that ran last year, according to a spokesperson. Um, This year's ads will focus on the theme of loving your neighbor like Jesus did, according to the spokesperson. And viewers enjoyed the He Gets Us ads last year, ranking them one of the top 10 and another in the top 15 of nearly 50 ads on the nationally televised broadcast, according to USA Today's 
ad meter. And at USA Today, it says, um, well, at the He Gets Us website, uh, well, here, I'll just read what it says. Quote, He Gets Us is supported by a growing group of individuals and entities who have a common goal to highlight the relatable life and unconditional love of Jesus, according to the spokesperson. It says, quote, the movement is not funded by or affiliated with any single individual, political position, church, or faith denomination. Many choose to support He Gets Us through common third-party charitable vehicles such as donor-advised funds. So the He Gets Us website gives readers scripture references about specific topics for further exploration. The web also links to Bible reading plans on version, And it's at version, by the way, where the gospel is presented. And so meanwhile, the prayer app Hollow, H-A-L-L-O-W, will air a Super Bowl commercial for the first time. And by the way, if you're unfamiliar with Hallow, H-A-L-L-O-W, it's the number one Catholic app in the world. And again, the company says the ad will show Mark Wahlberg and the guy who plays Jesus on The Chosen encouraging people to pray. Wahlberg will help lead Hollow's Pray 40 prayer challenge. So, 303-873-1935, that's the number. If you want to join me on the program. And um, so the question comes up and we've got an article posted. It got questions, your questions, biblical answers. Is the He Gets Us ad campaign biblical? Now, can you imagine you're spending millions of dollars for a meme? So in 2022, the phrase, he gets us, began appearing in advertisements. You will sometimes see them on baseball games, football games. Each commercial connects a modern cultural theme to apparently the experiences of Christ. These include Jesus facing family strife, persecution, misunderstanding, poverty, loneliness. Others touch on topics like tolerance, single motherhood, or religious hypocrisy. So the ads connect seekers to churches and discussion groups Reaction to the promotion has been mixed. Like I said earlier, the ad campaign at at uh, USA Today marked it as one of the t- top ten. And at this writing, at our article at gotquestions.org, nothing in the campaign appears to be explicitly unbiblical. But then our article goes on and says, but perhaps there might be some reasons for concern. And so how do we address that? Well, cautious skepticism. What does it say in the scripture? Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but 
test the spirits to see whether they're of God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. So in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, we are invited to test the spirits, especially when the ad is geared to some sort of quote-unquote proclamation or assertion. Now, I'm going to come to the issue of he gets us here in just a moment. But no human effort is infallible, but some are more biblically appropriate than others. There are many positive aspects to the he gets us campaign. Uncomfortable implications fit the pattern of Jesus' earthly ministry. The chosen topics are likely to challenge those inclined to dismiss or even embrace stereotypical Christianity. Pause in the article and think about that. We live in a culture that might have perceptions about Christianity that's more informed by the Simpsons than it is other things. Like if your only idea about Christianity comes from Homer and Marge and the so-called Christian next door, Ned Flanders, thank you, Jim. That's what's interesting about The Simpsons, though, is clearly that is the perception of a good deal of Americans. So I'll have more about this when we come back. 303-873-1935. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. The number is 303-873-1935, 303-873-1935. Been talking a little bit about the ads that are going to be coming out on Super Bowl Sunday. And more more specifically, we have a question posted at the ad campaign, if you will, at Got Questions, Your Questions, Biblical Answers. And again, the he, I was making comment that there are several interesting things, maybe even positive things about the He Gets Us campaign, but the campaign itself doesn't anchor into any specific beliefs or truths. While it may attract those traditionally unreached, it seems unlikely to ground those seekers in the Bible. Also, some points being made are thin or easily misconstrued. And so terms like promotion and marketing are often awkward when we're talking about evangelism. So the truly the gospel isn't meant to be bought and sold. And of course the famous passage is in Acts chapter 8 verse 20 where uh, Peter is talking to um, the wannabe sorcerer Bar-Jesus, who wants, he, to, he offers Peter money to be able to impart the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. So we know that salvation, you can't purchase it. It's already been purchased by the 
blood of Jesus. The Bible talks about that the purchase price isn't with things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus. So evangelism isn't about salesmanship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, Paul writing to the Corinthians says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so you'll you can imagine if if you purpose to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and him pers- uh, crucified, then clearly that's it is what it is. Now again, that means that the gospel includes conversation, not just that simply that Jesus gets you, but he gets you in such a way that he understands that you're a sinner in need of a savior. So we're back to this awkward situation. And promotion is simply bringing attention in the hope that people will pursue something. So in that sense, there's nothing wrong with marketing Jesus to those who are unreached by other forms of evangelism. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians Chapter 9, verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Now, Paul isn't even remotely hinting that he is able to save anyone, but rather to pre- given the opportunity to present the message of salvation, which in fact results in salvation. So, again, you have this paradox, or dare I even use the term contradiction, perhaps paradox isn't the right word. The absence of deep theology in he gets us advertisements isn't necessarily inappropriate. How much deep theology are you going to give in 15 seconds or 30 seconds? New Testament evangelism involves publicly declaring the core truths of the gospel. In Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, it says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man is standing before you well. This is the context of of Acts chapter 4, where they're at the gate beautiful, and of course a man is begging, and, and Peter says, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. So the man is able to walk, and it is by the power of God in Christ. It says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, I understand that in the He Gets Us campaign, deeper doctrine isn't the immediate focus, but the goal is making people aware of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. So sooner or later, everyone is going to be confronted with doctrinal truth and must make a choice. So that's what I'm wondering. That's what I'm wondering. That's what I'm wondering. At what point is it going to be sooner or later? In Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Later, John 6, 60, it says, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Remember the context, of course, is eating his body, drinking his blood, What do you mean, Jesus? What do you mean? Everyone is confronted with doctrinal truth and has to eventually make a choice. In John 6, verses 67 and 68, it says, So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So, is preaching the gospel simply an invitation to consider that maybe Jesus understands? A major concern about the He Gets Us ads is where it leads to those who respond. So the website for He Gets Us notes that Jesus' death and resurrection, it refers to him as the Son of God. That's right. Some contact links go to Alpha, which is a small group focused evangelism ministry. However, other links connect the seeker with local churches without seeming to consider their doctrinal guidelines and as a result the ad campaign may ultimately be pointing seekers toward something other than biblical truth you know it was Charles Spurgeon who said the difference between truth and error is the difference between what's right and what's almost right. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. I'll be back in just a second. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program again. The number is 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Lori, welcome to the program. Hi, Gino. Hi. 
Hey, um, I'm about to get on the highway, so I'm just going to pose my question and then hang up and listen to what you have to say. I have heard a couple times now in the last six months about a teaching from, um, I think his name is Dr. Michael Heiser. It's a book called The Unseen Realm, where he is asserting that God has a counsel that he uh, consults on creation and they're saying that where god says uh, let us make man in our image that rather than talking about the divine trinity it's talking about this council which i find that to be heresy um anyway what i'm being told is actually these scriptures have been there all along and that the jewish people that's what they've believed and I'm not so sure about it. it uh, whenever people um, interpret the Bible uh, outside of, say, the King James or NIV, NAS, I think you get cults. I think you get Jehovah Witness. I think you get the Mormon book. Um, but I, I would like to know what you have to say about it, because I've been told that there is a, a very well-known minister in this area that has been teaching about this and was getting a lot of flack but was going to continue teaching it and i would like to hear what you have to well, say about it yeah and don't don't hang up i know i, I don't i want you to safely drive <laughs> yeah but, but but again i know michael heiser or at least i knew him before he died and i had a couple of interviews with him and i've read the book the unseen realm and uh, again he his premise isn't any of the things that you just talked about. The premise okay. is he is that that there's a supernatural underpinning for biblical theology. I shouldn't say none of those things, but according to him, it, it's the, there is a premise that God presides over a council of lesser dare we use the word spirit beings or divine beings that that's what it says in psalm 82 so the members of what he calls the divine council and that's the way it's even translated in psalm 82 um are a part of a group of spirit beings now we know that god has created angelic beings they are spirit beings we know if there are other uh spirit beings we're unaware of who they are other than the hints that are given to us in the book of Revelation. So um, so he refers to them as Elohim. Now, Elohim is a word in the Bible that depending on the context, it, it, I guess the way I'm going to put it is this way. Elohim broadly means a spirit being. When it's used in the context of the supreme being, God... It means the supreme being, but it can also mean spirit being depending on the context. So Heiser rejected the notion that God is subordinate or co-equal in the polytheistic sense. That, so that wasn't his view. He doesn't think that there's a, that there's a hierarchy of gods um, that, that are co-equal and co-governing. That isn't true. Um, so, so the Bible doesn't teach Elohim as a pantheon of interchangeable deities like like the Greeks or the Romans. 
Okay. Now, what he does argue is that some members of the divine council rebelled against God. And he cites Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, which describes the self-exaltation of the divine council's members. And this lesser divine being, identified by the New Testament as Satan, corrupts Adam and Eve in the form of the serpent. And so God, in turn, declares war between the offspring of the serpent and humanity in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So this conflict manifests itself in two key events from the primeval history that lays the foundation for the rest of what theologians call the biblical meta narrative. So the first key event is the Sons of God episode in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, where Heiser, he rejects the idea that the Elohim, the, the Bene Elohim, that means the sons of God are mere humans, and argues that they're members of the divine council. Now, that may or may not be true. It may or may not be true or false. There are three um, large ideas that that these are, are uh, fallen angels. These are human beings who are inhabited by fallen angels. Um, there's all kinds of different views, but his view that that they're angelic beings who aren't who are literally out of the will of God isn't heretical. Um, oh, okay. Well, so no, that, I, I wasn't thinking that. Is well, is and, he and, referring to the um, where where God says, "Let us make man in our image"? Is he referring to the council in that regard? He might be referring to the council in, in that he might be referring to the council in that regard. And let me just point out two scriptures to you. Number one, when it says in our image, is it talking about the Trinity? Perhaps. Is it talking about spirit beings? Well, in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that human beings are made a little lower than the angels. So there seems to be certain attributes that we share with angelic beings. What do we have in common with angelic beings? Well, we're both created by God. What else do we have in common with angelic beings? We have will and personality. What else do we have in common with angelic beings? We are eternal creatures in the sense that once we're created, we're going to live forever somewhere. Now, how are we not like angelic beings? Well, um, it would seem that angels have a spirit body, okay? And we have a physical body. Um, we They have a body that's appropriate for where they are, and we have a body that's appropriate for, for where they are, where, where we are. And so... He points out, he interprets Genesis chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 32 uh, as preserved in the Septuagint, the Dead Sea Scrolls, rather than the Masoretic text. He contends that at the Tower of Babel, God chose Israel for himself, but disinherited the other nations, placing them under the authority of his divine counsel. And that many of those divine beings, however, became corrupt and led the nations that supervised a sort of um, mass uh, apostasy. So, so if if what's novel about what Heiser might be saying is he might be alluding to the fact that there was more than one event where angels decide that they are going to uh, disobey God. And so, is that heretical? No, it's novel, yeah. but it's not heretical. And um, okay. 
so, yeah, I, I don't think it's fair to refer to what he says as heretical, but I do think that it's fair to say that some of the things that he says is pretty bizarre. And I have a friend who's written um, a little bit about this, and, and I'm hoping to get a little bit more from him. But because, I again, I knew Michael Heiser. I've read The Unseen Realm. I, I enjoyed friendship and fellowship with him. Um, I see him as a, I plan to meet him in heaven. And so um, it's it's academic in tone, but it's it's pretty easy for non-scholars to follow. But he is a scholar, and he's going to write like a scholar. Um, and, again, he is going to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> but uh, his book is well worth reading and well worth thinking about. Okay. Okay, well, thank you very much. So that's my that's my two cents. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. No, no, thank you. 303-873-1935. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. The number is 33-873-1935, and I know I was earlier talking a little bit about um, the Super Bowl, the ads that are going to be on the Super Bowl, San Francisco and and Kansas City. I don't know if you knew this, but I graduated from the University of San Francisco, and um, so I have a kind of affection for the city of San Francisco. And I also am deeply troubled that drug addicts, did you know this, Producer Jim? Drug addicts outnumber high school students in San Francisco. I did not know that. Isn't that a shocking thing to say? There are more drug addicts in San Francisco than there are high school students. And the San Francisco Chronicle headlines, quote, San Francisco street horror only grows as drug overdose numbers spike. Now, the San Francisco Chronicle is not a paragon of conservative reporting. CNN, not a paragon of conservative reporting, reports drugs are sold in the open in San Francisco, in San Francisco's Tenderloin District. The New York Post adds, quote, inside San Francisco's den of death as liberal city faces drug crisis. And again, this from CNN, a mother was raising her son in a city she loved. Then San Francisco changed and stole her boy, unquote. And so where does this come from, that drug addicts now outnumber high school students? Well, it's found at Beat It, it's BeatItApp.com. So it's B-E-A-T-I-T, which stands for Employee Assistance Program. And again... It shows that San Francisco's drug addicts 
exceed the amount of students in their public high schools. There are, listen carefully, 24,500 injection drug users in San Francisco. That's about 8,500 more people than the nearly 16,000 students enrolled in San Francisco Unified School District, 15 high schools. And it illustrates the scope of the problem. It also had an increase of 2,000 serious drug users since 2012, since the last study was done. According to Dr. Navina Boba, who's the Deputy Director of Health, says there's an opioid epidemic in this country, and San Francisco is no exception. And so here we have this crazy, crazy situation. Now, I guess one of the things, well, another CNN report. Here's what it says. In an area a short walk from Union Square, the city's central shopping district, CNN reports it's common to see people using and selling drugs, human waste, used needles, bullet casings, litter the sidewalks. So you're going to root for the team. I'm going to root for San Francisco, but I'm thinking about San Francisco. And is what's happening in San Francisco, does it matter? Does it matter to you? In 2018, the drug overdose death rate in San Francisco roughly matched the national average. Five years later, it's more than doubled the national level. New York Times reporter Herman Lopez explains, quote, the San Francisco culture has become more tolerant of people using drugs. When I ask people living on the streets why they are in San Francisco, the most common response was they knew that they could avoid the legal and social penalties that follow addiction. Some came from as close as Oakland, believing that San Francisco was more permissive. Pause and think about that for just a moment. The New York Times reporter, Herman Lopez, if we were to ask the same thing, about drug addicts in Denver, do you think that they would say that the reason why I take drugs in Denver is to avoid legal and social penalties? Keith Humphreys, who's a drug policy expert at Stanford University, told Herman Lopez that San Francisco is, quote, is on the extreme of a pro-drug culture, unquote. Activists in the city argue for body autonomy, claiming that people have the right to put whatever they choose into their veins and lungs. They say it's no one's business but the drug users. Advocacy groups want people to use drugs more safely, arguing that abstinence isn't always a realistic goal. Now think about that argument as it was made with sex 20 years ago and as it's made with drugs right now. And at what point does body autonomy mean that I can put whatever I want into my body and then you have to pay the bill? You have to pay the bill. 
Body autonomy advocates often cite the drug policies of British Columbia, a global leader in harm reduction. However, British Columbia set a record for overdose deaths last year. So I'm wondering what, what, what has to happen in San Francisco, what has to happen in Denver. G.K. Chesterton observed, quote, what we all dread most is a maze with no center. I think he's right. But we also dread a question with no answer and a problem with no solution. And here we are. America is living, according to my friend Jim Dennison at the Dennison Forum, in a post-Christian nation. When your compass has no true north, it points wherever you want it to point, and you'll be lost and on your own. Now, I read an article about people who got lost, and it wasn't just an inconvenience it became something more than adventure. It became a lesson in survival. And Jim Dennison at his article today quotes from Psalm 36, so, so will I. In Psalm 36, David says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in the way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? Doesn't that sound like what's happening in Chicago, New York, New Orleans, Denver, San Francisco. Imagine a whole country that decides they're not going to reject the evil. Thanks for joining me. Prayerfully, I'll be back tomorrow taking your calls, answering your questions. Thanks for joining me, and thanks, Jim. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.